So earlier uh, this year, I had a, a procedure uh, done to my eyes. And it was a quick procedure, uh, but it was pretty nerve-wracking, primarily because I had to lay down on my back while my eyelids were pried open and they worked on my eyes. And I, just laying there, was totally helpless. And I recognized while laying there, and I was thinking about it leading up to it, which is making it more nerve-wracking, that if this goes poorly, my life is dramatically different. By God's grace, everything went well. But I wonder, when was the last time that you had to rely entirely on somebody else for something? Maybe it was an eye surgery. Maybe it was when you flew on an airplane, trusting that the pilot knew what he was doing. Maybe it was going to the dentist, having, having something done there. Or maybe just some other surgery or some other example that you can think of. But relying on somebody else entirely for something can be an uncomfortable place to be. Especially in our individualistic and, and self-sufficient culture. But, as we look at today's text, we see that's exactly, that's precisely where God wanted Israel to be. See, last time uh, we looked at Exodus 13, and God was establishing traditions so that Israel would be reminded through the consecration of the firstborn, through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would be continuously reminded of what God did to free them from the Egyptians. Those things were established so that Israel, the Israelites would remember God's past faithfulness, and that would inform their understanding of his future faithfulness. And now this week, we come to a famous text, the parting of the Red Sea. And as we look at this text, as we continue to just march through Exodus, what we've continuously seen and what we'll continue to see is that God is doing all of these things to make himself known. See, it's easy for us to to read this passage and think, what were the Egyptians thinking going against God? There's no way that they're going to win this battle, right? They're going to be destroyed. Well, we, we can have that confidence because we can look back and read about it. The Israelites, the Egyptians, no one else at that time had anything to, to look back on and read about and say, oh, yeah, we've seen God do this in the past. Therefore, we probably shouldn't trifle with this Yahweh. But rather, instead, what we see is Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? I don't know who he is, and I'm not going to listen to him. And Pharaoh himself thinks that he is some sort of God. And they've got all these other gods, and God systematically attacks each of them and makes it known to Egypt and to Israel and to the onlooking world, who he is and that he is in fact stronger and more powerful than all these other gods, including Pharaoh. What he wants Israel to recognize now is he continues to make himself known. He wants them to realize that freedom from slavery, because that's what he's doing. He's delivering them from the bondage of slavery and delivering them into a promised land of freedom. He wants them to realize that freedom from slavery is only possible when you rely entirely on, on God. So friends, freedom from slavery is only possible when we rely entirely on God. And so the, today we're, we're looking at Exodus 14. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn there. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 56. If you're flipping through your Bible, you'll see from the beginning Genesis, and then you'll find the book of Exodus, and then just look for that big number 14. 
And if you're new to looking at your Bible, I'm going to reference verses throughout. That's not song lyrics or anything like that. That's simply the little number under the big number 14. And that kind of lets us know where we are in the chapter. But as we look at this passage, uh, we're going to see it broken up essentially into three parts. So the first 14 verses, we see the, the salvation plan. In verses 15 through 29, we see the salvation work. And in the last two verses, we see the salvation response. So the salvation plan, the salvation work, and the salvation response. So let's read verses 1 through 14, and then we'll attack the rest of the chapter um, when we get there. But let's read those first 14 verses, and then we'll jump into that first point. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And that will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot And took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all. Excuse me. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them in camp by the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouraging text. Help us as we go through it to grow in our confidence that you fight for your people and we have only to be silent. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in the first four verses here, we see this salvation plan, but it's, it's quite an unexpected plan. See, God tells Israel to turn back. Now, remember, the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was leading them. And so they're just following God. And so 
when God says, hey, turn back, that can be a little bit of an unexpected uh, command. It's not exactly the kind of plan that they'd expect after he dramatically freed them from Egypt. But he tells them to camp between some small villages in the sea. And so it's a pharaoh who oversees this land and likely has many, I mean, likely those villages there were, were reporting to Pharaoh. And so when Pharaoh hears about and he sees what's going on here, he thinks that Israel's just aimlessly wandering through the wilderness, that they're lost. They don't know their way around. They have been in Egyptian captivity for the last 400 years. Of course, this is what's going to happen when you let them go out on their own. And he thinks, you know what? We can go get them back. But God has a reason for what he's doing. God said in, in verse 4 that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, that word harden, we've seen it several times in the book of Exodus. And we see the way that God does this to Pharaoh. But we also hear that, that Pharaoh's doing this to himself. And so just to, as a reminder, that as we see it three times in this passage again, that what God is doing is he's strengthening or fortifying what's already there. He's not changing Pharaoh's heart. It's not like Pharaoh's just just desiring to bend the knee to Yahweh and serve him. And God's saying, no, 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 no. No, Pharaoh is defiant. He hates Yahweh. And God is just hardening what is already there. A heart that has rejected the Lord, which will lead Pharaoh to change his mind and to pursue Israel. And God, as we see in verse four, he's going to get glory over Pharaoh and his army. And he, in getting glory over Pharaoh and his army, he's going to make himself known. The Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. Okay, so then, as after God lays out this kind of unexpected plan, we see Egypt's response, and then we see Israel's response. So let's work through that. So Egypt's response, in verses 5 through 9, they realize that their entire workforce has just departed. They've lost their firstborn sons, and so a great chunk of their leadership and those who would otherwise be able to work is gone. And then those who were their workforce just went out. And so they're realizing that they're in trouble. And so Egypt quickly changes their mind and they uh, go after Israel. And it happens just, just as God said that it would. When God says something, we, we can trust it. We've said that several times throughout this Exodus series. But again, we see God said this would happen. And sure enough, it does. And if you look at the second half of verse five, we read that the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptians go after the Israelites and they catch up to them. And you can imagine these Israelites thinking that they're free. All these amazing things have just happened. And now we're finally free. And then they see an army coming toward them. And once the Egyptians catch up to them, we see Israel's response to God's plan. And so like Egypt, verses 10 through 14 now, like Egypt, Israel also changes their mind. And they say, hey, you know what? We're done. Let's just go back to Egypt. It would be, it'd be better for us to be there. Look, Moses, we told you. We just wanted to stay there. You brought us out here. We're not looking to die. So uh, let's just, let's go back. We've changed our minds. And the Israelites are, are just adamant. We, look, Moses, we told you. We told you this. I mean, look at verse 12. They say, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And look, we don't want to gloss over that because actually what they're, what they're saying, what they're arguing seems reasonable. 
You have option one, be dead in the wilderness. Or option two, serve the Egyptians, but live. Death, life. I mean, it seems, it seems reasonable to say, you know, the option where we're alive, that's the one that I want to go with. However, Smith, you, it's wrong. It's the wrong answer. It would actually be better to, to die serving God than to live serving a false God. Because remember, Pharaoh believed himself to be a God. And so Moses tells them, hey, look, I know that what you're thinking seems reasonable, but look, you don't even have to make that choice. Moses tells them, verse 13 and 14, fear not, stand firm, see the Lord's salvation. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Look, the Israelites were freaking out, and understandably, they'd lost confidence in Moses. They'd lost confidence in the Lord again. And they knew there was absolutely no way they were going to beat the Egyptians. They'd come in their greatest chariots. They came ready to fight. And they knew there was zero chance that they were going to defeat the Egyptian army. But listen, friends, that was exactly the point. God wanted them to realize you are helpless. There is nothing you can do to get yourself to freedom. They couldn't defeat the Egyptian army. And God put them in a position where they had to rely entirely on him. And look, if God doesn't fight for them, they either die or they're brought back to slavery. One of those two things. And so God put them there in that position so they'd know that they need to rely on him and that he is worthy of being relied upon. He is faithful. Remember the previous chapter, he's having them remember his faithfulness. And now their, their trust in his faithfulness has suddenly disappeared. They've lost faith in the Lord. They've lost faith in his servant, Moses. And he, he's putting them in this position to, again, help them realize you are utterly, utterly helpless. And you need me. I am your only answer to getting you to freedom. And look, friends, even when we don't understand, this was an unexpected plan. I'm sure the Israelites... We're not only confused, but frustrated. But even when we don't understand, God's plan is still the best plan. From where we stand, God's plan may at times seem confusing and frustrating. And like the Israelites, your present circumstances, whatever you may be going through today, whatever you may be going through in the future, may seem insurmountable. Like there is no way out of it. But friends, if you trust God to deliver you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, he will, either in this life or in your death, he will deliver you. Christian, like the Israelites, you may be tempted to return to your former life whenever following Christ makes life hard or difficult or painful. Maybe you're not even planning on walking away from Christ, but you've taken a compromised position. You say, I'll follow Christ everywhere else, but when it comes to, to this over here, this, this fill in the blank, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I've made my decision. 
whether that be with your finances or your language or your job or your dating life or whatever that thing may be. You say, I, I, I'm not actually going to walk away from the Lord. It, it makes serving God difficult, but I'm not going to walk away from it. I'm just going to, in this area over here, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I'll ask for forgiveness later. Look, I'd encourage you just for a moment to, to consider the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ben has been taking us through the book of Daniel. And in Daniel 3, we see these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be confronted with an option. They say, hey, you can either serve Nebuchadnezzar's golden image and these false gods, or you can die. And they said it would be better for them to die being faithful to God than to live being unfaithful to him. It'd be better for them to die being faithful to God than to live being unfaithful to him. So they were thrown into the fiery furnace, trusting that God would ultimately deliver them either in their death or right there in their life. They relied entirely on him and friends, he delivered them. And so even if you're not sure how it's going to work out, I would encourage you, follow the Lord. His plan even when it's frustrating, even when it's inconvenient, even when it leads to your persecution and people being upset with you or frustrated with you, is still the best plan. The story always ends with his people being safely delivered from their enemies. We live in a fallen world. We're going to have enemies here. Christ said, as servants, we're not greater than the master. People hated him, they're going to hate us too. But the story ends with all of his people being delivered from all of their enemies. And like we're all in a position of needing to rely entirely on God for salvation. And if you're trusting Christ, if you're trusting God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to deliver you, then you, like the Israelites, don't have to fear. You can stand firm. You can focus and meditate and consider the salvation that God has worked for you in Christ. Why? Because Christ has stood in the gap for you. He's fought for you. He stood in your place. And you only have to be silent. You only have to recognize that I cannot get myself to salvation. I have to be silent and have to trust somebody else to do it. And that somebody else has been provided in God's son. And so friends, have you come to the place where you're relying on God and God alone for salvation? Or is there still a part of you, still a small part of you, that wants to pick up the sword with the Israelites and fight for some of it? To earn some of your salvation? Do you recognize the position you're in? That you are, in fact, helpless? That you need someone else to purchase your salvation, to fight for your salvation, to secure it? Do you need someone else to do what you simply cannot do? The Israelites realized that but it was also why they were freaking out. After crying out to the Lord, they were able to witness the salvation work. So let's look at verses 15 through 29. Let's read those verses. We read that the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. 
Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. God here does something interesting. So in those first four verses, we saw God reveal his unexpected plan. And now here he repeats his plan. And in verse 15, despite Israel being terrified, God tells them to go forward. He doesn't tell them to go blindly. He, he does expect them, however, to hear his instruction. We see that in verse 6, the instruction that he gives to Moses. But, and he tells them to hear that instruction and move forward. So Christian, God calls each of us to the same thing today. We are not given all the answers. The Christian life isn't a GPS with the Holy Spirit whispering turn-by-turn directions, as nice as that would be. But it's more like hiking with a compass and a trail map. If any of you have been hiking, you know what I'm talking about here, where you know how the trail is generally supposed to go. You've got a little squiggly line going around. And at some point, you may think you're about halfway through. And only to come upon a landmark that's on the map and realize that maybe instead of halfway through, you're actually a quarter of the way through. And now you realize that instead of going north, you have to start going east. You look down at your map, recalibrate, and you continue to go east. You adjust and you go trusting the general instruction that you've been given. And look, God has provided instruction. And we're called to move forward in obedience Like the Israelites, we're told the big picture, but we don't actually have every minute detail given to us. And so look, verses one through four, God told Moses and Israel the general plan. Not every detail, but generally speaking. And then in verses five through 14, we saw Egypt's response and Israel's response to that plan. And now in verses 17 through 18, we see that plan reiterated with very similar language to what we saw in verse four. There are three elements to God's plan being reiterated here. And these things. First, that God will harden the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
See that in verse 4, see it in verse 17. Second, that God will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. Verse 4 and verses 17 through 18. And third, see that the Egyptians will know that he is God. But now, instead of reading about Egypt and Israel's actions in light of that plan, we get to see God's actions. And he does at least three things here. So the first we see in verses 19 through 20, where God defends. So we see his presence, the the pillar of clouds, the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It's God's presence. We see that going from leading the people to moving behind them. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's because that's where their enemy was. Their enemy had shown up. And notice the effectiveness of God's defense. Look at verse 20. See that the cloud came between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the Egyptians couldn't even get near the Israelites. God's defense is an effective one. Why? Why couldn't they get near? It's because God himself stood in the gap between his people and their enemies. Yes, God is guiding them to freedom. But he's also defending them from the attacks of their enemies along the way. And friends, if you're in Christ, take heart. Because you have that same God defending you today. He has not changed. In fact, one commentary put it this way. So that God's special presence in the cloud. So we see the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God's special presence in that cloud prefigures his presence in Christ. Who is our protection and refuge against all the attacks of Satan. So that cloud prefigures Christ who stands in the gap for us, not only leading us, but also defending us from all of Satan's attacks. And again, friends, just to reiterate, I'm not saying that you're never going to experience pain. That's just not the reality of the Christian life. We live in a fallen world and we bump into the fallenness all the time. But when it comes to Satan's attempts to destroy us, They won't work. They won't work because Christ himself stands in the gap for his people. And anyone who puts their faith in him will be delivered. Which is what we see God doing in verses 21 to 25. So the first part there we see God uh, God defends. And now we see that God delivers. So not only does God defend his people, he's now delivering them from death. And he does this through an obedient mediator. Moses' obedience led to all of Israel being delivered. It wasn't because Israel was obedient to everything God was saying. They lost faith several times along the way. But Moses has been obedient every step of the way. He obeyed God when he told him to go to Egypt. He obeyed God when he told him to inform Israel of what Yahweh was doing to to free them. He obeyed God when he told him then to confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He obeyed God during each cycle of the plagues. And now he obeys God when he's commanded to stretch out his hand over the sea and part it. Sea was parted. People walked through on dry ground. And the interesting thing is that there's walls of water on both sides and Above them as they go, there's a cloud, which 
is essentially Israel being immersed or baptized. Now, okay, that might seem like a stretch. Okay, okay Rob, there's water on the side, water above. Sure, you like baptism. Okay. Um, but, but follow me here because Paul makes this, this connection. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. I, I mean, you could turn there if you want. I'll read it for you. But it's 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 2. We read Paul telling the Corinthian church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says that passage to the Red Sea was the type of their death, their burial, and their resurrection to a new life. It was their baptism unto God. So look, if the Lord can make the sea, I mean, there's no wetter place than the sea. If the Lord can make the sea dry ground, then surely he can make a sinner clean. And when he does, he spiritually baptizes us into Christ, which is why later we are physically baptized to represent what spiritually has taken place. He washes them clean. He delivers them safely to freedom's shore. And look, God doesn't just deliver to new life. He doesn't just defend his people. But he also, the third thing that God does here is God destroys He defends, he delivers, and he destroys. So in verses 26 through 29, we see that after the Israelites made it through the Red Sea, God had Moses stretch out his hand again. So he obeys by stretching out his hand, and it leads to his people's deliverance. But now God has him stretch out his hand again. And as a faithful mediator, Moses obeys what God tells him to do. But this time, it was to bring the water back upon the Egyptians. It was to destroy their enemy. Moses' obedience led to Israel's deliverance, but it also led to Egypt's destruction, their demise. And not one, we see this in verse 28, not one Egyptian remained. God isn't just going to partially cleanse the world from sin. And he's not just going to partially rid you of your sin if you place your faith in him. He is going to to entirely cleanse the world. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there is zero sin in it. And you, friends, if you are trusting in Christ to remove your sin, if you are trusting in Christ to replace your sin with his holiness, you will experience that new heavens and that new earth entirely sinless. Not because of what you've done, but because we have a mediator who has stood in the gap for us, who has fought for us, who has not only delivered his people, but is destroying their enemy. God's people are saved because of his actions, not theirs. And so when Israel approached the Red Sea, they approached it as those seeking to escape slavery. And when they came out of the Red Sea, they were truly free. All because God defended them, God delivered them, and God destroyed their enemies. What God does here at the Red Sea is just a small taste of what he's going to do on a cosmic scale. Again, that those who call on Christ are going to be delivered from the slavery that sin has them under. That one day, God will deliver all of his people to that safe shore where there is no more 
enemy to be a threat. Now, anyone who is against God, anyone who decides not to put their faith in him, but put their faith in something else, to trust something else like the Egyptians did, will be destroyed like the Egyptians. God's judgment is a perfect judgment. And God's people will look back and see how God destroyed their sin and how he eradicated sin so that they would be able to enjoy eternal freedom where not one sin will remain. And so friend, are you trusting God today to deliver you? Have you placed your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin? Is, is your confidence in Christ is it in his work or is it in your work or something else? Are you trusting God to eventually deliver you from the pain of this fallen world? Or do you find yourself feeling hopeless because of some of the things that have gone on in your life presently or maybe in the past or maybe even things that haven't yet happened, but you're concerned that they're going to happen? Friend, if you're feeling hopeless today, I would encourage you, just when you get home, sit down, open up your Bible to Psalm 42 and just read that slowly. Psalm 42. Are you trusting God to defend you and to protect you? So when Satan schemes and attacks you to be closing in, are you trusting God to protect you? When you're wronged, when you're misrepresented, are you trusting God to defend and protect you? If you're here today and you're wrestling with sin, are you trusting God to destroy that sin, to eradicate every sin in your life? And look, that's a, that's a progressive process. Positionally, we are seen as perfect because we're in Christ. But in, in our present state and when we're still in the flesh, we fight against sin. Are you trusting God to help you have victory over every one of the sins that you fight against? Are you relying on him for victory over that? Or are you trusting in your own abilities? So we've seen the salvation plan and we see the salvation work. And now we see the salvation response. Look at me in verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Verse 30, we see that Israel is saved. They are saved, and they see the result of it. Their enemy is dead on the seashore. There's no more threat. If you're in Christ, that day is coming when we will look back and see every, every spiritual enemy utterly defeated, where there will be no more threat. And then we see in verse 31, Israel responding appropriately. We see that they feared the Lord, so they had a healthy respect and a healthy fear of him. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant. They had faith in God and faith in God's mediator. Friends, true salvation always, 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 without exception, leads to faith and obedience. They feared him and they believed him. They feared him, so they followed and obeyed what he said. And they believed in him and his servant and the mediator that he has provided. So true salvation always leads to faith and obedience. Faith in Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh and God's chosen servant and mediator. And it leads to seeking to obey him, to follow him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love him and to follow him in light 
of that love. For Christians, that word Christian means Christ follower. For claiming to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, and going contrary to what God would have us do, then we can't in good faith call ourselves Christ followers, Christians. And so one of the effects of a new heart, of of someone who's been converted, is that they seek to follow Christ. They desire to follow Christ. They do it imperfectly. Nobody here is walking in perfection. But we have a new heart's desire to not pursue sin, but to pursue what God says is good. There's a healthy fear and respect of the Lord. There's a belief that what he says is ultimately good for us, that it leads to our greatest joy. And now look, taking a step back from this passage, we can't ignore the parallels that we see here. So in verses 1 through 14, we see God's plan, how that impacts Egypt, and how that impacts Israel. So both Egypt and Israel change their mind. And then in verses 15 through 29, we see God's plan reiterated, how that impacts Egypt, they get destroyed, and how that impacts Israel. They are saved, they're delivered. But notice, right in the middle of these two parallel passages, verses 1 through 14 and verses 15 through 29, right in the middle, we see verses 13 through 15. I know we've already gone over them, but look at them again. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. In verse 14, we see the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And in verse 15, God tells the people of Israel to go forward. Friends, this right here is the diamond that the rest of the passage is holding up. This is the diamond that we're to see. This is the the, the thing that, that we cannot leave here missing. Namely, that freedom is available. But it's only to those who humbly accept that they bring nothing to the table, who are able to be silent. To those who believe that Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross for sin, and his resurrection on the third day are sufficient to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. To those who realize they have only to be silent and that they're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that their works add nothing. Israel's works added nothing. God said, you just don't need to fear. I'm gonna fight for you. I'm going to secure your deliverance and you have only to be silent. Just sit here and be quiet and trust me. To those who believe that the enemy has been defeated and that freedom is secured only because of the obedience of God's servant, God's mediator, they will enter into that that freedom of the promised land. They will enter And they will enjoy eternal freedom that's found only in Christ. Freedom from slavery is only possible when we rely entirely on God for it. We are saved by faith alone. We love our Roman Catholic friends. We pray for their conversion. But the idea that you have to additionally work for your salvation is a wrong one and an unbiblical one. We rejoice that we have only to be silent. And we can trust the perfect mediator, to lead us to freedom shore. Friends, don't think that being right with God has anything to do with what you've done. We don't earn salvation. We offer nothing. We're simply observers 
and glad beneficiaries. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the great work of salvation that you have accomplished through Christ. Thank you for the foreshadowing that we get to see of that as you led your people by your mediator Moses and delivered them and defended them and destroyed their enemy. Thank you for the way that you have done this in an even greater way through your son, Jesus Christ, who defends his people, who delivers them, and destroys their enemy. We pray that you would do that in our lives, grow us in holiness and sanctification, and grow our faith and our trust in his finished work for our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.